I grew up in lots of small towns across the United States. And so um, that kind of community approach to journalism is is what I have always loved and what I've gravitated towards. And, and I think it's even more important to show that kind of view of war. On this episode of the Wander Women podcast, we have Andrea Bruce, an award-winning documentary photographer who's worked in Iraq and Afghanistan for over a decade. For many of those years, she's worked for the Washington Post on a column called Unseen Iraq, providing a window into the everyday life of those directly affected by the movements and politics around them. It shows us how similar we are, which is exactly the point. You're not really going to care what happens to people who, who live a very different life than you unless you feel like you can relate to them first. She strongly emphasizes a community-level approach to journalism and is even advocating this as some sort of new template for journalism, especially in the United States where we've seen a decline in the value of local small-town type of engagement. Journalism has now been devalued. I mean, when I go into a community now and I talk to different organizations and different groups and high school students, they're like, oh, we've never met a journalist before. We also discuss how she's approached covering tough subjects such as prostitution in Iraq during wartime to the coal mining community in Appalachia. And I've asked her what it's like to be a woman in the industry and what kind of advice she has for others in similar fields. So my first question for you is, when and where did photography start for you? Is this something you studied um, specifically in school, or how did you go about getting your first gig? Um, well, I, you know, growing up, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, and that's what I went to uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill forwards to be a writer and um my last semester senior year I saw a friend hanging out in the hallway and asked her what she was doing and she said she's standing in line to sign up for some photo class and I thought just for fun why don't I do it as well and as soon as I picked up a camera in that class I completely fell in love and I dropped everything else I was doing internships and um, you know, any other plans I had to be a writer and I became a photographer and it took many years before I could actually have a portfolio that was strong enough to get a job. But I, um, but yeah, I just did internships and assisted for people and worked my butt off until I could finally, um, get paid for, for doing the thing that I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess your writing kind of helped you, though, when you worked at The Post. Um, and I believe you worked at The Washington Post for eight years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is where you created the wonderful column called Unseen Iraq. Can you tell me a little bit what it was like to work at The Post in that kind of newsroom environment and what you hope to accomplish with that column? Um, sure. I... My first job was at a really small community newspaper um, in Concord, New Hampshire, called the Concord Monitor. And um, we were a very small staff, but we had a lot of freedom and a lot of support from the main editor, um, Mike Pride. So 
we um, we basically worked nonstop, and we produced amazing photo essays, and we we experimented. And I did a photo column there, um, uh, and it was it it was brilliant because it was a chance to kind of show community life. It was like, um, you know, a small bit of text, um, kind of explaining a certain moment in someone's life and, and one photo. And I would drive in one direction for like, you know, I tell myself 10.6 miles and I'd stop my car and just the first person I would see, I would go and talk to and find out what was happening in their life at that moment, or I'd even knock on a door or I would just read a small clip in the newspaper about something happening and I would go. Um, and it was about like kind of those unsung moments in someone's life and, and about the community and about the, the things that we that we seemingly think are boring in our own lives, but are actually quite interesting. So then I got to uh, the Washington Post after the Concord Monitor, and as soon as I got there, I was um, sent off to um, Iraq because the war suddenly started, 9-11 happened, and then I went off to Iraq, not ever have, I've never actually wanted to go to Iraq, I never really wanted to cover war, never considered it before but the war happened and I went and as soon as I got there I realized that it was what I thought I should be doing and I ended up staying in Iraq for about seven years um and it was important to me because I felt like the same thing I did in New Hampshire with this kind of photo column that I had there I could do in Iraq um and that is getting people from the United States to recognize and appreciate and find similarities um, in in the community of Iraqis that I found um, in Baghdad or Ramadi or wherever I happened to be uh, when I was uh, based there. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like in the United States we, you know, you can't really. Um, you're not really going to care what happens to people who, who live a very different life than you unless you feel like you can relate to them first. And so the column was very much about, you know, oh, you know, people in Washington, D.C. are commuting on a Monday morning to work. What is it like to be a Rocky and commute to work on a Monday morning? And just taking that simple moment in someone's life and, and showing it in a photograph. Mm-hmm. A photograph that asks a lot of questions and then and then kind of poetically or attempting to be poetic about sharing this moment in that person's life. Um, it was a lot of fun and the Washington Post um, really embraced it. They, they supported it. Uh, do you think doing that column specifically changed the path of the rest of your career? Um... I don't know if I don't know if that column really changed the path of the rest of my career or if it was more that I grew up in lots of small towns across the United States and so um, that kind of community approach to journalism is is what I have always loved and what I've gravitated towards and and I think it's even more important to show that kind of view of war mm-hmm. um, something that seems so foreign but can easily not be foreign and um, something that 
is still happening on a community level, like neighborhoods and families and, you know, how do people eat dinner and how do people go to school? So, um, so even since then, um, I, I continue to have that kind of approach to conflict or to any of the topics that I cover, whether they're overseas or in, or in the United States. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really like that idea of challenging yourself to find stories in the ordinary and you don't have to go far away off to exotic locations. You could, you know, drive 10 miles and knock on someone's door and find a story. I think a lot of people have the tendency to feel limited by the familiar. Um, do you have any general advice, I guess, on how to overcome, I guess, being visually lazy when you're in a very familiar situation? Um, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, how to avoid being visually lazy in a familiar situation. I mean, I think, you know, to be a journalist, or to be any type of photographer, you you kind of have to have a, a level of curiosity mm-hmm. um, that goes beyond the norm. Um, when I see people and I spend a little bit of time, you know, in someone's life, it's fascinating. Um, and and you know, like I said, everyone thinks that their own life is boring, mm-hmm. and it's not um when you are you know i feel like i'm a foreigner whether i'm in a different country or if if i'm in anyone in the united states's home because there's still a life um a family that is foreign to my own and um and if you just spend a little bit of time i think i think that's probably the answer it's just to spend time yeah. you have to um make a commitment to get to know people and to not be afraid and not feel uncomfortable inside someone's home to be respectful enough to be granted that amazing opportunity and to recognize the importance of everyone's life. No one wants to be invisible, um, in this world. And we are so many people in this world Mm -hmm. that it's, um, easy to feel that way. So I think that's part of our job. That leads me to my first question about a couple specific pieces of your work and uh, just coming into someone's home and getting them to trust you. Uh, For instance, in documenting prostitution in Baghdad um, in the early 2000s, in which you profiled a woman named Hala, I believe is how you pronounce it. Hala, Hala. yeah. Um, how were you able to earn her trust in order to document something so intimate? Well, so I came up with the idea that I wanted to cover prostitution in Iraq. Um, I don't know, partly because I was covering at that moment a lot of daily bombings and um, just news in Baghdad and I mean almost every morning would start with some type of bomb and you you know you go to you go to the bombing site and then you go to you know the hospitals and you go to the morgue and then you go to the funeral and it's just this it became this gruesome um, 
almost daily ritual. And um, I really needed to do a longer term story that got me out of that strict headspace and, and into like understand, understanding a different view of life, of, of wars, you know, influence on daily life. And I thought prostitution, like prostitution almost everywhere, especially in war zones, um, it, it, it skyrockets during war zones, mm-hmm. during war, because, um, because you have so many women who are left um, widowed um, and without a way to support themselves. And this was definitely the case in Iraq. So, and I, I got to see, I, after a while, you can kind of tell who the prostitutes are. Um, they were a bias uh, still, most of them, but um, you can kind of tell underneath who, who or how they dress or who they hang out with or if they're in hair salons or, I don't know, you, you get to recognize this. And I interviewed probably over 30, maybe even 40 women before I found Hala. And Hala, she was incredibly strong and smart, um, but she had two main characteristics that I had to look for. And one was that she didn't ask to be paid. Um, and two, that she totally understood why I wanted to do the story. Um, she, she was, she, through a translator, she basically said, like, look, my life should be like this. My husband died during the war and I want to tell my story. This, this shouldn't be what I'm going through right now, but this is what I have to do to take care of my two children. Um, and so she ended up following, letting me follow her. And it, and I hung out with her whenever I could. So it was basically, I don't know, like, like three or four days a week for almost a year. She became my best friend <laughs> in, in Baghdad. We hung out all the time. Whenever I could, I was at her apartment and she switched apartments quite a few times, but at her apartment, um, hanging out with her kids, hanging out with other prostitutes as they did each other's hair at night you know, before they left on um, a, a, a job in Ramadi or Fallujah, you know, I hung out with them and just kind of got to listen and they got to ask me lots of questions about what it's like to be a woman in the United States mm-hmm. and, yeah, kind of get to know her life. Mm-hmm. Um, how long, of, how much time did you spend with her? If you, you interviewed 40 something women and then I imagine spent a lot of time with her um I mean I mean I hung out with her for at least six seven months Mm -hmm. so probably more actually I can't even remember but it was a little less than a year on and off so so I'm wondering um how you would recommend other aspiring photojournalists approach highly sensitive situations when perhaps there isn't the time to spend earning someone's trust in this way? Um, I mean, I think you have to, you have to try to find a way. I mean, if it's a highly sensitive and important topic, I think you have to find a way to be able to spend the time. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no, there's no real, you know, replacement for 
the amount of time that you spend with someone and the amount of trust that they give you and the, the amount of understanding that you have of them in their life to be able to, to really be able to document it fairly mm-hmm. um, because people are giving you this opportunity and this, you know, honor of, of documenting their life. You have to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, but I mean, gosh, for people who don't have the luxury of time, I guess, I mean, you, you basically, if you're going to do an important story like that for yourself, I mean, you know, I lived in Baghdad, I lived in Iraq, um, and I was working for a newspaper, so I was getting a salary. But even since I've gone freelance in the past six years, I guess, um, or seven, um, I've, you know, I have projects that I spend time on that I don't get paid for, um, to be able to get the kind of um, access and understanding that I want. And, um, and then, you know, I apply for grants that give me more time, Mm -hmm. uh, to spend with those, you know, that topic or those people that I would like to spend time with. Um, but I guess the biggest step is figuring out what story is most important for you to tell. Not, not only what are you most interested in, but also, but also like what is needed I mean, you don't, we don't need like 500 journalists covering the same, you know, small conflict the exact same way. Mm -hmm. We need like people to be covering a war or a conflict or an issue in lots of different ways. So, um, you know, finding out what would be most helpful for the public to know and what is the best way to do it. Um, all those things have to be really thought about before before you dive in. Yeah, I ask this question because I think it's one of the most critical aspects of the type of work you do. And there are two trends that I fear would kind of stand in the way of ethically approaching those situations. The first being um, more and more people are are taking photographs now and not necessarily doing so in a responsible way or I've been in communications with up-and-coming journalists who will go and come back within a few months and I just think to myself that's really not a lot of time to spend with your subjects to really get to know them and gain their trust and then secondly just how the industry is changing so much and we don't really have a lot of full-time photojournalists on a salary you have a lot of news organizations that are curating free content or content from social media so it kind of makes it like this more competitive weird space so I just feel I guess a little bit cautious about how the next generation of people in this field approaches those kind of situations yeah I mean I think it's it's really hard these days to get paid to do quality important work um to be supported enough you know to be able to do that well is is extremely difficult um i think grants um are probably a good way to go about it um but also i mean i don't even know how people would 
get their first assignment or their first job unless they become an expert on what they want to be covering first. So I usually recommend to young photographers or, or beginning documentary or photojournalists, like to move to the place that you want to, to live in, to cover, mm-hmm. move there, know the language as you know, much as you can out, get to know people. This could be even in your own country or someone else's country. It, you just, you have to spend the time to understand where you're make the, make the commitment to really become the expert, um, journalist in that region or on that topic, um, that you feel is, is something that's going to give your life purpose and, and really, you know, continue, you know, giving the public something that they might really need. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you, if you can do that, if you can be known as an expert in, you know, s- Southern United States, even, you know, anywhere, the border, Mexico, you know, Lebanon, it doesn't matter where, if you can, if you can, establish yourself as someone who really knows what they're doing, then, then editors will come back to you and they'll remember you and they'll, when things come up or when, or like one grant can kind of roll into another grant. Mm -hmm. Each topic can be connected to another topic that, you know, that you might be interested in, in some way. I think that's very good advice. Um, and so the, the other piece of your work that I wanted to ask you about is the series you did called A Dark Addiction for the Post, um, which happened when you first place in 2009 at Pictures of the Year International. And uh, I wanted to bring this up since the narrative of the coal miner has been hard to escape over the last year. And mm-hmm. I guess it's it's not so much a, a question, but... Um, I'm wondering how you're reflecting on the way we're covering this culture of coal miners and their pride, and are they really as empowered as we say they are? I mean, what what do you think after having seen what's been portrayed in the last year or so? That's really interesting. Um, I'm actually back in the same um, counties that I covered for that story in 2009 um, over the next couple of months. To, to cover the coal miners or the coal communities one one more time um, and I and I you know I, I still have a pretty good relationship with a lot of them so it's it's really nice to go back and and kind of hear things out because right now it's such a different time for them than it was in 2009 um, there was like a, a coal boom and then another bust since then um, and back in 2009, it's when I first realized how intense um, the whole, you know, addiction to pain medication um, existed. It, it was so intense and coal miners waiting, um, you know, in line outside of different methadone clinics um, before going to work. Um, I think that a lot of that has died down. 
I don't know why or how, but I feel like maybe people actually have just died. Um, but, but I think it, it's not as much of a problem as it once was, but spending time with the coal miners has made me realize, um, how frustrated they are with the entire United States for many reasons. And some of them very good reasons. Um, they have been like, I don't know how to explain this. So in Appalachia, especially, um, a lot of coal miners deal in metallurgical coal, which is not for power. Um, it's for steel, making steel, making coke. Um, and this is a huge misunderstanding in a lot of cases. They'll get people from all over coming to them and like protesting what they're doing because they're killing the environment. And, and, and it's really frustrating them to them because people don't even know what they actually do or how they do it or why. And, um, and they feel like there's a huge like ignorance like if people are going to spend so much time protesting what they do, then they should actually understand what they do. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's frustrating because they feel like they're getting picked on from every side. And these are people also who who have at one point, you know, were on the forefront of the steel industry, steel that's used to make lots of things, including like airplanes. And and they're used to being seen as almost like heroes. But now that, that the environment is is slipping. Um, now they're seen as like the evildoers or the bad guys. And they feel this weight incredibly heavily. Like they, they, they feel like everyone has basically abandoned them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when someone like Trump comes along and says, like, I have your back, that's something that they don't really hear very often. Um, but I don't really think that the for Trump is I mean it's there obviously but it's it's not like people are standing on their rooftops shouting his name I think it's more like mm -hmm. they're he's the only person who's really said that they want to support them so yeah well I think it was it's a good example of encouraging people to tell their own story a little bit and I've I've seen other photographers try to think of ways to do that, either by empowering people to take their own photographs, giving them cameras and equipment to do that, or in your case, it you had some audio recording and it just felt like you really were trying to get them to tell their own story and something we don't, we don't really get it from their perspective in that way so often. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I've... I'm coming back to the United States this year, um, last year and this year, and I've started a project where I go into different communities in a different way. And a lot of this comes straight from the community background, the community journalist background that I've always had is trying to find a different template for covering communities as an, the outsiders that us journalists often are. So I've been going to different communities and I start by going into the schools, the high schools, and I talk to high school students, I show them pictures of mine from overseas, and I start a discussion with them. And then I also go and talk to um, different community organizations. And then 
I find out from them, from everyone in the community, like what is the story that's really affecting them? What is it that they are saying? Instead of going into Appalachia with the story that I'm trying to prove, like going in and just really listening because it's incredibly interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> when you can and you, when you have the time. And this has been on my own time, so I haven't been paid for this. But I'm hoping that the stories that come from this will um, be able to support this kind of process in the future. And I'm also hoping that it becomes a template, a template that once existed when we had more community newspapers, but we don't really have that many anymore. Um, And so this kind of old fashioned way of connecting, you know, a low, a small town newspaper with a small town um, you know, the crazy photographer who used to always be at all the like soccer games and baseball games and knew all the high school students' names and did pet of the week and was always called when something happened just doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still need to have that connection as a journalist, as a photographer with a community for a million reasons, um, but also because journalism has now been devalued. I mean, when I go into a community now and I talk to different organizations and different groups and high school students, they're like, oh, we've never met a journalist before. And I think, wow. And then I tell them the process of what it's like to be a journalist. And and they say, wow. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't know that you actually, you know, spend time and you try to, you know, the best that we can be – you know, connect the dots and and make sure things are honest and have more than two sources and, you know, do our homework. Um, And and that kind of connection between a community and a journalist is still really important. So um, I'm trying to start forming some kind of template to, to help journalism and photography and, and giving communities like a chance to have a little bit more of a voice Mm -hmm. in, in all of the journalism that we do, Mm -hmm. which is something similar than we do overseas. It's just for some reason in the United States, it seems to the whole structure has weakened tremendously Mm -hmm. and we can't lose. I think that, that (laughs) the idea that journalism is still important. Um, people need to, know what our purpose is mm-hmm. really and i'm i'm curious if if any of that kind of flows over into the work you do with noor which is a photo agency you co-own uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and and why it was important for this group of photographers to come together in this way um, yeah, there are 12 of us right now. Um, we're our photographers from all over the globe. Um, and we've joined together. We own our own company and we support each other because we needed um, a community of photographers with like-minded goals. We, we are socially minded. We like, like we we have the same um, ethics um, that we feel is extremely important in this industry. Um, we have 
um, similar voices, but very different styles. So a lot of our photography, although we might all be documentary photographers, we, um, you know, some people shoot more video or film. Some people shoot a lot of medium or large format old-fashioned film. Some of us um, shoot more like New York Times or National Geographic assignment shooting, you know, and but together we can work on projects beyond just what keeps us afloat. We can dive into education and um, and pushing each other to do to really further what we want the industry to look like not just what we as individuals want to be. Um, and I think that's so important. Um, we really believe in what we do and we all have each other's back. Um, and we push, hopefully push the industry to, um, to become better and to survive, mm -hmm. you know. That's it's great to see people coming together. Uh, I would have imagined it's a competitive field, and it's just good to see photographers coming together with the same ethics and larger goals in mind. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's also hard. It's yeah. <laughs> it's not always easy to connect to like twelve people from all over um, yeah. the world. <laughs> We're all on crazy schedules, but. Um, but I, what we all truly believe in it, and um, and we can see the positive kind of trail that we leave behind, and and I hope we can keep it going, mm -hmm. and encourage others to do the same. And so now I'm at the last uh, portion of this, and this is more advice for others in considering this field. Um, I know this type of work you do requires a lot of a person, takes a certain kind of person to be able to do this, especially um, war journalism or uh, going abroad and not community-based journalism. Um, what have been some of the most challenging aspects of this work for you? Um, wow, there's so many. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, people often think that this job is so glamorous, and I guess it can seem that way on the outside, but it's really a lot of hard work. Um, you get to travel to amazing places and meet incredible people, but um, but you're on the road often. For instance, I haven't I haven't lived in a I haven't had my own home in over 16 months. I've been living out of a suitcase. I have gone from assignment to assignment, and I'm lucky to have those assignments, but it, it's it's a lot of travel and a lot of being alone. I'm lucky to have good friends and family who kind of keep up with me um, through the Internet, but, it's, but you don't have the life of, you know dinner parties and, uh, you know, lots of friends and parks and I don't know, whatever people do these days <laughs> together, you do, it's a very different life. Um, and, and that can be hard. Mm -hmm. It's, and it's hard to balance because it's unpredictable. You can't really control the, um, 
the the events of the world and you have to kind of go with what happens um i think uncovering war has its own issues of course i've i've lost a lot of friends and um and i've i i guess i see the world differently than a lot of people my age when i go back to washington dc and i have the odd opportunity to go to a dinner party um it's kind of hard to have and what's thought of as a normal conversation mm-hmm. so um it's there are all those factors as well it's hard to keep a relationship it's hard to keep um it's even hard to just keep like a a normal friendship mm-hmm. with people so so that's the, that's actually the hardest part um yeah yeah um and I imagine for many people having a routine, it just seems soul sucking to continue on with, but you know, it's when you go abroad for so long, you start to miss that kind of the routine and normalcy and boring stuff, I guess. But it almost seems that for many photojournalists, um, once you're so entrenched in, in that kind of work, it's hard not to do it like it just becomes such a part of your life that it's there forever yeah it's it's kind of my normal Mm -hmm. I mean I'd still dream of the day when I can have some kind of balance between um you know being on the road nonstop and being able to have a home where I can do my own dishes and grocery shopping um it would be nice to and hopefully I will be able to someday still balance between the two worlds. But but it is very different. I mean, I, I love my job. I, I, I love being a photographer. And I, um, I can't imagine not doing this. But, um, but there's some magic to the routine of life that everyone has that I get to sit in on, whether it's in Iraq or Afghanistan or Washington, D.C., or Appalachia, I still get to like sit in and watch other people's daily routine, and I I see it as magic. Um, I also like that you stress the importance of having a good fixer, and so I was wondering what kind of advice you have for finding someone and vetting someone you can trust. Um, well, that's that's hard. Um, you know, you're as a photographer or a journalist, you're only as good as the team that works with you. So, um, I and I really do wish that publications would would you know recognize the fixers that help us somewhere, uh, like a byline. Um, but I think for the most part, I use things like Facebook. I just say, hey, I'm going to, you know, Bali for the first time in my life and I, I need a, someone to work with. Does anyone know? And the photo community, we're pretty close. I think people are usually more than willing to to share the amazing people we've worked with before. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's a great way. In other locations like Afghanistan, it's a little harder. Um, sometimes I go to local universities 
and I, um, you know, if I need someone who speaks English, I can say, you know, go to the English department and, and ask who would be available, who are the best students, or if there are actual professors who wouldn't mind hanging out with me for a week or two or a year. <laughs> um, so uh, it's a, it's usually pretty word of mouth, though, who, who are the good people who are fun to work with and who believe in the same things you do um, and who have a good sense of purpose mm-hmm. in all this. Well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about going to universities and other places. That's a, that's a good one. Uh, do you find that this industry, photojournalism specifically, is harder for women in some ways or, or maybe it's changed a lot over the years and you've seen it progress? What what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I've my personal experience as a photographer has been that it helps to be a woman, um, especially in the Middle East um, and in areas where it's hard for men to be able to photograph women. Um, I feel like I, I have the lucky ability to photograph a woman's life. And also somehow I become an honorable, like an honorary man as a foreigner in many of the cultures that I've visited. So it's, it's been beneficial, um, to be a woman, but in the industry, that's a different story. I I think, um, as a staff photographer for newspapers, that's very different because they kind of, it's obvious if you hire, you know, 18 men and have one woman, it's pretty obvious. Um, but if you're, an editor working for a magazine um, and you're just thinking on the fly, who are you going to hire for all of the assignments in front of you? Um, Sometimes I think without realizing it, editors can rely on whatever stereotype they might have in the back, the the, the back of their brain, um, which um, is often kind of the white male with the scruffy beard um, that many people think of as like the photojournalist who covers war or travels to other locations. So um, I think that causes a huge hole in the diversity, whether you're a woman or a minority um, uh, in this field. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like there's been a good movement to change that recently, and that's exciting. But I, I do feel like it's harder to be a woman in the industry. And part of that probably also has to do with the fact that most of the women I know, not all of them, but we have a hard time um, maybe being as cocky as we should be or being as, like, you know, I guess full of confidence as a lot of our male counterparts. And um, and I think when people hire you, they want to know that, that you can do this. Um, they want to know that you have confidence in yourself. And that's understandable. Um, maybe us women are not as good at showing mm-hmm. our confidence. Um, I think that we are extremely dependable, um, maybe even more so. But we need to show that kind of confidence, I think, to our editors. Um, 
to really to really push us forward. So when the post sent you to Iraq, were you surprised by that or was that something you volunteered for? It was kind of a last minute decision when I first went to Iraq. It, they were going to send four people and one person, his father became ill at the last minute and he decided not to go. And they asked me to go in his place and it was very last minute. Um, and I and I just agreed to it. I said, okay, why not? I'll try it. Um, but it wasn't something I was pushing for. Um, and I didn't really even, maybe I, I, I didn't, I wasn't surprised by it, but I wasn't, um, but I, but it wasn't something I, I was pushing for Mm -hmm. myself. So if I was, if I had been a freelancer, I'm sure they wouldn't have sent me. Um, but I was who they happened to have on staff. So out of the four people, were you the only woman? Huh. Um... I think there was another woman who had, there were a few, there were two other women, I think, who had been, who were in the rotation to go to Iraq and Afghanistan during that time. Mm -hmm. But of the people who were sent for the beginning of the Iraq war, I was the only woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would imagine there would be some, just some hesitation to send women to dangerous places. But, um... I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly don't think that my bosses at the time thought of it that way. Okay. I don't think they thought of whether it was safe or not to send a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they looked at their staff and tried to figure out who was willing to go. And because they had a staff that was completely mixed of men and women, it happened. Mm-hmm. But this is the problem with when you have a choice of all the freelancers of the world. Um, I just don't think it's someone's, and I think most editors would send women. I don't think it's a huge, I I really don't think that people rest on the stereotype that women might be more vulnerable in war zones. I think that it's just the stereotype that men are the ones that you should send. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That it's just like commonly are sent that, that people rely on a bit too much. Yeah. Well, they're def- it's definitely um, important to send women to get that the other side of things, especially in the Middle East where men can't photograph women. So, yeah, and I really don't think that women um, are more um, at risk. You know, I don't I don't see us that way at all. In fact, I find us as probably less threatening to some people. So it's yeah. a little more. Um, so it's almost maybe a little safer. Mm. And then just one last question for you. Where can people find you? And do you have any upcoming projects or guest lectures or workshops coming up? Um, I will be lecturing at an Indian festival of photography in Hyderabad, India. Um, that's coming up... Uh, think mid-September um, and aside from that I, I have 
I'm kind of everywhere right now. <laughs> I, I've been traveling a lot, but I, um, I'm going to be working more and more in the United States in the next year. I feel like mm-hmm. it's probably a good time to come back and, and cover my own country a bit. Um, so I'll be uh, traveling throughout the United States working on the project I told you about, mm-hmm. at least for the next year. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I could pick your brain for hours, but I know you have important work to do, and I look forward to continuing to follow that work. So thank you so much for your time again and your willingness to share your wisdom with us, especially for anyone listening interested in pursuing similar work. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to um, to listening to your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Well, you're in good company. I I've heard back from a few top female photojournalists like yourself, and I, I guess I'm a little bit surprised by it, um, but I, I just think it's wonderful how willing this community seems willing to share their knowledge and wisdom with everyone. I get that sense, especially from photojournalists for some reason. Good. Yeah. I'm glad. I feel like women especially, I feel like, are, are kind of – trying to send out their voice a little bit more these days. So, um, so I'm glad you've, you found that. Mm -hmm. Good luck in Argentina and Molly off to next. Sounds exciting. (laughs) Constantly (laughs) traveling. Constantly traveling, but yeah, hopefully soon the balance will happen. listening to Wander Women, be sure to check out the show notes on wanderwomenstories.com for links to topics and resources discussed in this episode.